So the first Bible reading this morning is from John chapter 3, verse 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. Oh, good morning all. The reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through to verse 7. And it's for us, for to us, a child is born all these many years before Christ came to, to live as man. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as in the, of, on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle of tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel in the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increasing of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. For this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance and of heart. The bricks are fallen and we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down but we will put cedars in their place. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Well, for to us a child is born, that is indeed what we're going to be here tomorrow to celebrate purely. 
But today we can certainly come up and bring ourselves to an understanding of how all these things were foretold. Today's passage is about joy. The joy that a man and woman will experience once they have a full understanding of the enormity of the promise made by God to his elect for all time. That is pure joy. The joy Isaiah is referring to in these verses is greater than any other. As it does not speak of just a small time piece of history, it speaks to the eternity of history. Let us pray before we start. Our gracious and loving God, we do come before you to thank you for these two days, one after the other, Lord, where we can focus on your Son and the wonderful plan of salvation that you put into place before time, before creation. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your love, your mercy. Be with us, guide us by your Spirit this morning, open our hearts and minds that we will truly focus, focus our thoughts and hearts on your Son and his love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in the chapters in Isaiah leading up to ninth chapter, Isaiah has been prophesying about a sad time, a time of calamity for Israel and Judea. A time when the promised land, split as it was at that point in time into northern and southern kingdoms, Uh, would be overrun by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians to follow, all by the will of God, as a punishment on his people Israel for what they've done, or what they shouldn't have done. Which is why he starts, why Isaiah starts his chapter with the word nevertheless, in my version of the Bible anyway. And it simply means in spite of all the trouble facing the nations, And that is what comes next. I'll read from the NIV today. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom to those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Also, considering what the Jews have contended with during their time in Egypt... It's kind of referring back to some of that. And, and the long and the testing time, the 40 years they spent walking in the desert, as well as all the other attacks they have endured over all those years, they are now faced with total humiliation, according to Isaiah. Firstly, the northern kingdom will be dismantled. The people will be removed. The southern kingdom, Judea, will be also removed to Babylon. There will be no more gloom to those who are in distress. Kind of strange words, isn't it, when you think of what's coming. It's almost as if he says that this pending calamity won't be as severe as what the Jews had experienced beforehand. What possible reason, you could ask, can Isaiah have been given to make this outlandish statement, there will be no mourning. To give the people an encouragement and a promise of such magnitude to hold on to in their time of distress 
when they are firstly removed completely from the northern kingdom and then they are going to live for 70 years in Babylon of all places as slaves. The reason is all due to the promise Isaiah is about to give them. It is because of the magnitude of the blessing and the promise for a blessed future that the punishment they are suffering or going to be suffering will seem less, will feel less than the suffering they have previously endured. In verse 2 it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Well, see, God set a timeline this time for Babylon particularly. It was going to be 70 years and then he promised he would bring them back to the promised land. And when Messiah then refers to the land of deep darkness, of course, he's referring to Assyria, he's referring to the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire even. The only thing that can be maybe confusing is uh, when he says, "May a light has dawned uh, in the middle of all this. Isaiah is actually speaking to them about an event if it had already happened. Even if it's not to happen for another 700 years. He's opening up the truth of the coming joy just a little by little through this passage, step for step, if you like, taking into account that people sometimes just aren't quite ready to get the whole story in one lump because it's too much for them. In verse 3 he says, You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy, they rejoice before you as people rejoiced in the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Now we know there have been great, great joy when the Israelites were taken hold of the promised land. Of course there was joy in that. Even if Zebulun and Naphtali had failed in the task of removing the people from the land that they were asked to do. And again, the glorious days of King David, but the joy come would be even greater than that. The joy to come would be the maximum. Speaking of the joy people feel when they divide the plunder celebrating victory, as we know, that happened regularly in the Bible. But such joy is, however, short-lived. It fades quickly when the daily routine returns. But the joy Isaiah is now speaking of will be much greater, even greater than in verse 4. For as in the day of median defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Well, you can just imagine They've gone through all that. You can imagine the joy that people feel when they have had the rod of slavery, the rod of their oppressors lifted from their shoulders, the burden of which have been depressing. In fact, the joy has been so great due to the fact that this promised future is greater than even, well, even greater than creation itself. I know that probably is a lofty statement. Creation, after all, was a pretty big thing. But think of it this way. To build a house on a block of land, empty block of land, no problem. It requires a lot less effort than having to eradicate all the problems with an old building and then having to rebuild in and around this old structure that are sitting there, making this new creation, this new house, even better than the house that was there beforehand. I'm hoping you see that sort of reasoning. 
See, when God made Adam with his own hands from the dust of the earth, the result was clean, it was faultless, it was good, declared good by God. It was sinless, as it were. But now, God had taken a people stained by thousands and thousands of years of built-up sin and removed all that grime and dirt from their very being and created in them a new being, faultless in his own image, in his own likeness no less. Sinless, righteous, like God himself. He, God, would pour out his mercy and restore his creation according to his will, And seriously, when you think of that, none of us are allowed to question God's wisdom, nor his plan, or his method of doing all this. And certainly we are not to question God's authority in any way, shape or form. Paul writes in 9.20, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Frankly, no one would be so deluded to put his own wisdom up against God, would they? Well, we hope for your sake you don't. Frankly, verse 5 is all about the duration of the peace that will be established by God in this case. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. When God established the peace as fire is now speaking about, the warrior's garment will never ever be used again. No requirement of it. It is a peace that no man can ever hope to achieve by his own means. It is a peace that can only be achieved through the act of the Creator Himself through a redemption plan that's set in place by the only God with the full power and the authority over life and death then this brings us to the core of the promise that Isaiah has been given. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Isaiah is here now really pressing home the point that we really ought not be so obsessed with what we have already here that we lose sight of what is to come. Already back in his day, Isaiah would point to people to a time into the future. The birth of the Son of God and the Son's place on the throne of David to rule indeed for all eternity. When he then also refers to that Son as the Prince of Peace, we know he speaks of a peace that again only God can achieve. And wonderful counsellor, I mean it's an outstanding title to have, indicating that the child, the redeemer, will come endowed with absolute wisdom. And let us not forget that the prophet does not deal with the hidden essence of Christ, but about the power that he displays towards us when he walked on earth and in all the things he taught us. Messiah called him counsel because he is in every respect the highest and indeed the most perfect teacher we've ever seen. All that is necessary for salvation is revealed in Christ. 
endowed with such familiarity and closeness as Jesus no longer speaks to his disciples as his servants, but he calls them his friends, just as he now does with you and I. When he also called Jesus mighty God, Asai is hoping to make clear to anyone reading or hearing his voice that we can fully place our lives and our trust in Christ Jesus, that he is not just a fully human, but he is, more importantly, he is fully God. The reference to Father, of course, is also to solidify our standing of God as the author of life. All those things come together to give us the comfort and the trust knowing we are in safe hands. We therefore ought to lift our minds to consider the blessed and everlasting life that is to come to those of us here today. Even if we actually possess all this already by faith. But we are told by Paul in Romans 8.2 Because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And finally we go back to have a look at the Prince of Peace, the really big one for me. Asaiah stepping it up a bit here. By the use of this title for Jesus, he declares that the return of Christ Jesus will be the cause of a full and perfect happiness and of calm and of blessed safety for all his people. Biblically, the word peace often signifies prosperity, since nothing is more desirable than true peace. If we really understand this aspect of Jesus, we would then also live lives that would indicate that our lives actually should display a foretaste of what is to come. <coughs> I think what we learn from Romans 5.1, therefore since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the cornerstone, that is what has been established by the death of Christ. Isaiah continues in verse 7, Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over all his kingdom, established and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Intriguing how Isaiah sort of links government and peace. Uh, when you consider governments and how they manage that peace these days. But when we consider that this truly means, we also very quickly arrive at a conclusion that once Jesus returns and disposes of the current crop of governments around the place and reigns as our king on David's throne, we will obviously have that blessed, full, true peace reign amongst us. Mind you, this change is also a spiritual change happening in our hearts and our minds according to what Paul also wrote in Romans 12 do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing and perfect will see it is in our hearts and minds that all this will take place as he brings righteousness and justice to bear on the new Jerusalem Again, we will surely consider all this as we live our daily lives whilst we wait for his last return.
Let us call what we're told in Philippians 4.7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Everything is higher, a promising here in chapter 9 speaks of what God promised through John as we are told in 3.17. We are told, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That is the promise. Isaiah has been tasked with prophesying some dreadful events to befall Israel and Judea, whilst also revealing some wonderful promises in the future. You and I have also been tasked with sharing our insight into the Word of God with the world around us. In that, in that sense, we are the same as Isaiah. There are some dreadful things to come, but the promise is still there for the future. We, however, unlike Isaiah, can speak of things that have come to pass already. We know the birth, the birth of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has happened. He did die on the cross for us and took our sins. He was resurrected on the third day to give us new life and new hope. But there are still things to come. His final return. God has delivered on every promise he ever made, which is why we can be so confident that he will also fulfill everything that is yet to come. Namely, the return of his Son, and with him, our eternal life in heaven, when his time is right. The only real question we sometimes have to face is how strong is our commitment today to be like an Messiah and a willingness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a world that's so badly needed. What makes it somewhat easier for us to share is the fact that we know and we have seen that it is the zeal of the Lord Almighty that will accomplish all this. It is not in our strength that all this will happen. It is in his strength, in his mercy and his love. What an incredible gift we have been given. The Son of God as our Redeemer. The Son of God as our friend. This is indeed a time of rejoicing and not a time of mourning. Tomorrow is the day we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Tomorrow is the day Isaiah spoke of when he wrote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. My prayer is that may your Christmas be filled with his love and his joy as you celebrate this birth of the son that came to live and die for you, to give you the life that is promised. Let us pray. Our loving and gracious Father, it is truly beyond comprehension the plan that you set in place for our say of salvation. Lord, we can only pray and hope and read your word and keep, keep getting a much better and deeper understanding of what Jesus had to go through make all this possible. His obedience to your plan, Lord, to your commands, to fulfill the promise that you made to us. 
May you indeed guide us through these two days, Lord, as we celebrate the birth of your Son, that we may rejoice it, that we may indeed ponder this in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.